Amen. Good morning. You would grab your Bibles and turn over to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2 is where we'll be. Luke chapter 2. I got thinking yesterday, this might, yeah, it's the first time in a long time. Um, I, got, I, was, I was so scared I cut it off right then. Um, I had a thought and it was all by itself. Um, Luke chapter 2, I thought it's already December 17th this morning. And I haven't even done one message yet out of Luke chapter 2. And I thought, well, it's a good thing I've gotten around to it already, you know. Uh, and so I thought, usually you hear about six messages out of Luke chapter 2 in most churches uh, before you ever get to Christmas. And so there's more about Jesus Christ and his birth than Luke chapter 2. And so sadly, people just kind of brush over all those other things. And so I'm excited, though, this morning. I do love this passage. It is fantastic. It is a great spot. And it has some of the best verses on Jesus Christ and his deity and what he came to do and all of the setup for who he is. Uh, and so it is the pinnacle, one of the pinnacle passages uh, for the life of Christ. And in Luke chapter 2, we'll read the first 20 verses of the chapter. I do know that's a little long. I normally don't read that long for an opening passage, but we will. And it's very familiar to most of you. Luke chapter 2 and verse number 1, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea onto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. And so we have the, the passage on Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ. And uh, we've been talking about uh, the last few weeks. A couple weeks ago we started in Matthew and we talked about the birth of the king. And the king of the Jews shows up and of course you have the wise men coming and bringing gifts because the king has arrived and they came to worship him. And then last week we talked about Mark and how Mark portrays Jesus Christ as the servant and he shows up as the servant of God to go ahead and do the job of the servant and to give his life a ransom for many and to seek and to save that which was lost. And he finished the task at Calvary and gave his life and how the servant came and, and it was the birth of a servant last week. And this morning we're going to preach on the birth of the Son of Man. 
And Luke portrays him over and over again as the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man, the Son of Man. That's his title. Luke was the physician, and as he looked over uh, things, he portrays Jesus Christ as the man. You get to see more of his humanity throughout the book of Luke than you do in the other Gospels. Points to his, his weaknesses and his, his times when as, as a man, as a human being, he would be subject to the things of humanity. His lineage in the book of Luke is found in chapter 3 and uh, as he goes back and he's, he's working through the lineage you find out that he is the son of Adam which was the son of God. Takes him all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 and brings you all the way back literally into Genesis chapter 1 and lets you know that the start of all of mankind was God creating Adam and making him in his own image and after his own likeness. And by Adam, by transgression, falls, and we'll get to that here in a moment. But it goes all the way back, and so God shows up. And here he is, and God shows up as a man. He's particular not just to become a servant, but to be do it just as a man would do it. He shows up in humanity. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. He shows up as a man. He shows up in all of humanity. He shows up with all of the frailties of the human body. He shows up with all of the possibilities of failure as a human being. He shows up, just like his predecessor Adam, he shows up as the Son of God, but he was a man. Flesh and blood. Jesus Christ shows up. And the real question is, why would God even bother to do that? You look at world religions and you look around at the rest of the world and what they have as religions and their gods don't become men. And they certainly don't become men to do anything great for the ones they have come to. Jesus Christ is such the exception to all of the rest of the worldly religious views. Even in Christianity, quote-unquote Christianity, and what, what people believe to be true of Jesus Christ, they skip over the greatness of who Jesus Christ is. They'll gladly say that he was a wonder. They'll gladly say that he was a prophet. They'll gladly say that he was this and he was that. They will come up short on who he really is and his ability to save to the uttermost. They'll give up on that. They'll go, well, I'm going to be good enough and my works will be good enough. They go ahead and they push toward the idea that, well, my religion will be good enough, my church will be good enough, these things will be good enough, and if I do these things, everything will be okay. And they limit Jesus Christ just to that. And even in the Gospel of Luke, where Luke is bringing Jesus Christ and trying to show him off as mankind, as his humanity, you know what you will not escape throughout the book? That he is more than just mere man. He is the Savior of all of mankind, if they'd be willing to take Him. And so this morning I'm going to preach on the birth of the Son of Man, and ultimately it's going to be all about why did God show up as a man? Why? Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll get into the message today. Father, I do thank You for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only price of our sins. The only payment that's good enough and sufficient enough is the blood of the, of the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And Father, I do thank you so much you'd send your own Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Lord, I do pray you would help me. Father, as I preach this morning, that you'd give me just the right words at the right time and everything would be done just the way that you want it so Jesus Christ would be praised, Father, to the fullest. And Lord, once again, I pray if someone here or someone listening doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray they'd get a great glimpse of the only Savior in the universe and they'd call upon Jesus Christ alone to save them. Father, we do pray you would bless our service today. I pray you would work in hearts and come back soon. Lord, we'd love to see you even today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here he is, and, and notice Jesus Christ has come. He's come as a man. His lineage, as I mentioned, Luke chapter 3, runs him all the way back to Adam. So why does God show up in the flesh? Why does God decide to set aside the glories of heaven, set aside his eternity, set aside all of the greatness of his omnipotence, and step down and become a man? Well, first of all, really is, 
Adam failed. Adam was a failure. <laughs> the problem was God needed somebody to be successful. And Adam wasn't. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Another familiar spot. But Genesis chapter 3. This is, this is one, of, one of the craziest moments in all of the Bible right here. This is, this is so strange as you look at it. Mankind has two people. <laughs> That's it. Adam and Eve created, and they're only given one command. Two people, one command. You think we could hold this down, right? Like this would be... Pretty much, uh, right? This is, like, hey, this is simple, okay? Don't eat one tree. That's it. That is your command. This shows you real quickly how awful we are. <laughs> we cannot hold anything together. Uh, you know, you sit there and you deal with your kids and your eye is driving me nuts lately. Say, why is he driving you nuts? Because you tell him and he goes, yes. And you understand. Yes, I understand. Okay, all right. Three seconds later, he's doing the thing that I just told him not to do, right? That is humanity. That is mankind. We are sinful. We do the thing we're not supposed to do and we know we're not supposed to do it and we do it anyways. And you go, why did you do it? And they don't know. I, I don't know. I don't you look at Adam and Eve right here, and you know what happens. We'll read it. Verse number 1 here in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent, that'd be the devil, was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, we all know the problems with that, right? He didn't say that you couldn't touch it. He said you couldn't eat it, and he said you'd surely die. Uh, and verse number 4, The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And then you know how it goes. They hide from the voice of the Lord as he shows up and God has to kill two animals and go ahead and lambs were slain so that they could have coverings and coats of skins because the fig leaves weren't good enough. And here they are and Adam chooses to sin. He makes the choice. He's there. He knows what's right. She knows what's right. You can try and go ahead and slide in, well, the devil made me do it, but that doesn't work. You knew what was right. You chose to do the wrong thing. Adam chooses the wrong thing. That's pure and simple. Adam and Eve choose to go against what they know to be right in the eyes of God. That's sin. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. That's all there is. So you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 22. For as in Adam, all die the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death. That's what happens to every one of us. We all die. Eventually, death comes. Or a trumpet will sound and we'll be spared that. But it's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. You say, why do men die? Because of sin. They ate of the tree they weren't supposed to eat of, and the consequences are thou shalt surely die. Death comes because of sin. So as in Adam, all die. You and I are all, all from Adam. He's the first man. Eve's the first woman. Everybody comes from the two of them. And everybody, because of that, is destined to sin, and everybody is destined to ultimately die. I'm glad that's not where 1 Corinthians 15, 22 ends. <laughs> Say, what happens? For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. He shows up as the difference. The first Adam fails in sin and he falls and he completely messes it up and destines all of us for death. 
And Jesus Christ steps in and what does he do? He flips the scales back the other way. Look over at Romans chapter 5. I love this spot in Romans chapter 5. The youth group at one point, we all tried to memorize this chapter right here. It's a few years ago. We tried to memorize this chapter. A bunch, bunch of us got it, I think. But this last part was the confusing part, right, Javier? This was, this was Javier did it. Uh, this was the confusing part where you're trying to get all the, all the phrases right here at the end. And you get to verse number, number 12 here in Romans chapter 5. In verse number 12, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world. Well, we know who that is, right? That's Adam. One man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Everybody sinned, so everybody dies. We choose. Just like, just like Uriah chooses to disobey, you and I choose to disobey. Everybody disobeys. We're not obedient. Verse number 13. For until the law, sin is in the wor- was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless... Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Adam pictured somebody who was going to show up later. Say, who is he? Well, it's Jesus Christ. Verse 15, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one much more, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ." Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. That passage is full of things. Uh, I can't expound on all those things this morning. We would be here a while. But the truth that he's giving you is this. On one hand, you have this scale of sin. And on that scale of sin is Adam. (laughs) And Adam has sinned, and so everybody after him follows suit. We all sin and come short of the glory of God. And because of that one man's sin, we all are now condemned to an eternal punishment in a lake of fire. That is the the judgment and the just condemnation from God. That is absolutely just for him to do so. And that is the just punishment for sin as a lake of fire for all of eternity. And Jesus, we go, well, that doesn't sound very fair. One guy messed it up. Everybody else is going to die now. Everybody, I didn't get a choice. You did get a choice. You chose to sin just like everybody else has chosen to sin. You knew what was right and you chose to do wrong. You got a choice. And Jesus Christ shows up. You go, well, that's not fair that one guy messed the whole thing up. Maybe if I had it as easy as he had it, I wouldn't have messed it up. You would have. You would have. You're just like Adam. You would have. I would have. We'd have messed it up. We aren't very good when we know what to do. We still don't do it. That's just mankind. We fail. Adam fails. Jesus Christ shows up. You know how God makes all the, all the balancing act work? He goes, all right, one man messed it all up at the beginning. So what I'll do is I'll give one man. I'll put one man in his place. The second Adam shows up. 1 Corinthians 15, he calls him the second Adam. Jesus Christ shows up. You say, what does he do? He lives righteousness. He is the righteousness of God personified. That's who he is. 
This man hath done nothing amiss is the, is the pronunciation from Pilate at his death. This man hath done nothing amiss. Nobody, nobody could ever get him. Outside of through jealousy and envy, they bring him up. They have to lie about him and, tr- and change what he says and go ahead, and he lets them do it. But grace and truth comes by Jesus Christ. It's the righteousness of God that shows up, and Jesus Christ comes to do what? To balance out Adam's failure. Adam sins, and because he sins, we're all condemned. Jesus Christ lives righteously and gives his life a ransom for many so that you and I could all get the grace and the mercy of a holy God and pay the debt of all of your sins off by the blood of the righteous Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Say, why did God have to show up? Because nobody else was fit for the task. Nobody else was going to measure up to what Jesus Christ could do. Jesus Christ was the only one. You know, there's these things that the Lord does himself. You find them in the Bible. I just love those passages. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews. There are certain things you don't have anybody else do, right? You're working on something, you don't have anybody else. You go ahead and you do that job. I'm not trusting anybody else with this task. This is mine, all right? There are certain things I am particular about my electrical work, all right? Kind of one of my, you know, the trade that I did and I did it for a long time. I don't like other people doing my electrical work. I just don't like it. You can ask poor Mike over there, all right? I do, you know, I'm wiring up things when I'm doing things. I'm very particular about how I do them. I like them that way. When somebody else does something, I look at it, I'm like, why did they do that? That doesn't even make sense. Uh, we do certain things. There's certain things in your life, I guarantee you go, I don't want anybody else to touch that. Why would I let them touch that? That's what I'm, I'm taking care of that problem. That's mine. I do that, <laughs> Maybe I'm the only, am I the only one? Are we with me? Are we okay? Right? Okay. All right. Uh, and we go, no, that's, I, we're particular about certain things. There's only certain things. Now you could let almost everything else go. But when the Lord wants to show up and get his bride, he doesn't send the angels to come get you. He shows up himself. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven. <laughs> that's who comes. There's certain tasks. The Lord says, I'm not trusting anybody else with this. Everybody else would fail. And you know what he did? He said, you know what I'll do? I'll send myself. Because I'm the only one worthy enough to pay for the debt of all of the sin of mankind. Nobody else is up for the task of replacing the first Adam and becoming the second Adam and giving life to everybody else. There's nobody else. God looked down and he said, you know what I'll do? I need to replace the first Adam with myself. And I'll become a man. I'll beat all the temptation that's given. I'll beat every, everything that's thrown at me. I will go ahead and I will die a righteous death for the sin of all of mankind. That's an amazing feat. He became a man. Why? Because Adam failed. And somebody needed to bring life when all that we had was death. Look over at Job chapter 9. See, that's it. He's done with this whole message right there. Nope. Before 11.30. No way. No way. Job chapter 9. I... This is one of, the, uh, one of the fascinating spots you get into is Job chapter 9. Now, you know what happens to Job, right? I, I, I'm assuming you've got some, some Bible history of Job here, right? Job is, of course, the, the chess piece in the middle here between God and, and Satan at the time. Satan comes up, you know, and he's supposed to walk to and fro in all the earth, and he's looking for somebody to go ahead and Go after, and the Lord says, hey, well, did you consider my servant Job and how there's none like him in all the earth? Perfect and upright, one that fears God and eschews evil. And the devil's like, well, yeah, but you protect him. And he goes, well, what if I don't? (laughs) And they wage over this idea 
that Job is going to fail. Now we know Job doesn't fail. He holds his integrity for two rounds with the devil. He goes ahead and stands his ground. Amazing. <laughs> In all this, he sinned not with his lips, nor charged God foolishly. His wife even asked, Dost thou retain thine integrity, curse God, and die? And his answer is, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women. <laughs> the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Whew. Job's got it. But Job doesn't know why any of this is happening. He loses everything, right? He's sitting down on the ground. The dogs are coming and licking his sores. He's scraping the boils with pieces of old pottery that's all broken up and just trying to... And his friends come and they sit there with him for a little while and then, right, then his friends turn on him. And here he is in Job chapter 9 and he asks probably... He, he comments on probably some of the most pressing things that man deals with when they're going through troubles. In verse number one, then Job answered and said, I know it is of a truth, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. How are you going to answer God? If God actually wants to go ahead and answer you, what are you going to say? You've got nothing to say. You're man. We're sinful. We're the cre creature, not the creator. He says, He is wise of, in heart and mighty in strength. Who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered? Who hardens himself against God and won't yield to what he has to say and actually gets away with it? Nobody. Uh. Say why? Because ultimately they'll stand before God in judgment and he'll put them in a lake of fire if he wants to. Fear him that is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That's where you'll be. And he says in verse number five, which removeth the mountains and they know not, which overturneth them in his anger, which shaketh the earth out of her place and the pillars thereof tremble, which commandeth the sun and it riseth not and sealeth up the stars, which alone spreadeth out the heavens and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. God's the one who goes ahead and he walks on the water whenever he feels like it. He spoke the universe into existence. If he doesn't want the sun to shine, he just turns it off like a light switch to him. It doesn't matter to him. You and I are completely worthless without him. We have no power. We have no strength. We don't even exist if he doesn't want us to exist. And the comparative is God is way up there. And here I am. What am I going to say to him? Jump down a little bit because it's going to just talk about God's greatness some more. And I'll move down to the point that we're getting to. Look at verse number 30. It all builds to this point. He says in verse number 30, If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch and mine own clothes shall abhor me. His statement is, if I try to clean myself up as best as I possibly can, I'm still dirty. I'm never going to be clean enough to be clean with God. How can a man be just? That's how he started the chapter, right? How can a man be just with God? God is so holy and so clean, we know that the heavens are unclean in his sight. Where mankind hasn't even set foot, God says that's still tainted compared to how holy he is. You and I can't get that. He says in verse number 32, For he is not a man, as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. You know, the ultimate, the ultimate portion, you've got Adam's failure, but you've got Job's argument. Job makes a really good argument here. The argument is God isn't a man, and if he were a man, he might fail like I fail. That's ultimately, Right? God is just, I am unjust. If God was a man, he may become unjust. 
If God was a man, maybe I could reason with him. But he has no idea what it's like to be a man. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But you and I are tempted. Jesus Christ as a man becomes tempted. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He, we step down. You bring God down. You know what his three complaints are ultimately right here in this spot? Number one, in verse number 32, he says, For he is not a man as I am. Well, Jesus answered that. He's not a man like me. Well, Jesus Christ became a man. He set aside the deity and became a baby in a manger. They wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You talk about being a man. Well, he doesn't know what it's like to be poor. He thought he came from wealth. He's born in a stable and laid in a manger. His father was a carpenter, not royalty. And technically not his father. His stepfather was, he wasn't royalty. He wasn't born into a rich family sitting in comfort and luxury. He was sitting in, well, in, in poverty just like you and I were sitting in poverty. He's, he doesn't have anything great. You and I have more than he had. Jesus Christ, he wasn't born in greatness. He wasn't hailed as to be wondered at outside of the angels and some shepherds. At two years old, the only people who cared were three wise, some wise men that showed up and walked over and came from afar. They're the only ones who thought anything of him. Nobody else cared. He's 12 years old sitting there in a temple and nobody thinks anything of him outside of the fact they're like, where did this guy come from? They marveled that he would know such things. But nobody, nobody paid him any greatness. He didn't show up and, and have all these kings and all the kings of the earth show up and start worshiping him. And proclaiming him. He didn't get a throne. He got a cross. Oh he gets the triumphal entry. And they start showing off how great he is. And how wonderful he is. And they're praising him for a moment. But by the end of the week. They're crucifying him. That didn't last very long. God is not a man. Well he died like one. Beaten and whipped and scourged. Mocked and spit on, nailed to a cross with a crown of thorns driven onto his skull, left to hang there and bleed and suffocate and die. I think he answered the call of, is he a man? God is not a man. Well, Jesus became a man. God Almighty shows up as a man and was found in fashion as a man. Say, so why did he leave? He's answering Job's call. Hey, God, you're not a man. I can't really talk about this with you. What problems does God have? God doesn't have any health issues. God doesn't have any financial issues. God doesn't have any relationship problems. God doesn't have, but Jesus did. God shows up as a man. There he is. Say, so what's the next thing? He says, verse number 33, Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Daysman's ultimately, he's, he's a lawyer, he's a go-between, he's a mediator, he's somebody in the middle. Mediator's job is to lay his hand on both of us. Ultimately, it is to bridge between one party and the other, right? It's to make amends between two parties that are at odds. Job feels he's at odds with God because all these things are happening. And he's going, I've got nobody head, and how do I bridge between the almighty God of the universe and me? Nobody that I can talk to here understands God, and God doesn't understand me because he's never been a man. How does this work? 
And then you get to 1 Timothy chapter 2, of course. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. And then he tags it with the man, Christ Jesus. Yeah, but he's God. Yeah, but he became a man. To do what? To be the final go-between between mankind and God Almighty. The God of the universe needed somebody that could stand in between and understand what mankind deals with and understand what God is and who He is and how He is. It is the, it is the way that God can show the love of God to His creation and still be just. He says it in Romans chapter 3 that He might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. You realize that God has to stay just and still make it so me and you can step into a sinless heaven when we're not sinless? The incredible moment is that God can go ahead and take somebody as wicked as me and figure out a way that he can still be just and holy and say, you can get into heaven. <laughs> I don't deserve to get into heaven. It's not by works of righteousness, which I've done. I can't do anything right to get into heaven. You say, what do I need? I need somebody who can go in between and that when we get to the place where he says in Isaiah, come, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That Jesus Christ can step in and go, okay, here's the deal. God needs you to be holy. That's the truth. You need to be holy to get into heaven. If you're not clean, if you go ahead and grab the cleanest, most amazing snow and take snow water and wash your hands and be never so clean like Job said. You've never been that clean in your life. You still can't get in. Jesus says, "Don't I got something better than that. I've got something far better. See, Job, your other problem is, how can man be just in the eyes of God? That he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. How do I get justified? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. I've got something better than snow water, Job. It's the blood of the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. It doesn't, see, the thing is, it doesn't just cover it up. It doesn't just kind of go ahead and cloud over the issue. It doesn't just smear over and go, okay, well, at least nobody can see what I've done. Instead, it washes it away entirely, and it purges the man of his sins so that he can be forgiven forever. Well, yeah, there's no way. How can I be just? He's, a man. He's not a man. He doesn't know. Jesus is the man who came to become the daysman for mankind so that they can have a payment for all of their sins, Jesus Christ, and the blood of the Lamb of God to take away all of it. Jesus Christ is the answer to all of Job's argument. And He's the only answer to all of Job's argument. I can't get myself clean. That's why Jesus came. To make it so you could be whiter than snow. God, you know, if God's not reasonable, if God's not, if he's just that mean, when he stands there and says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they should be white as snow. If there's no way for you to get white as snow, that's not a reasonable argument. That's not a reasonable God discussing anything. Instead, you know what he does? Hey, I'm reasonable. I'll make all the payment. I'm reasonable. I'll go and I'll make the payment for all of mankind's sin. I'm reasonable. You can't get to me, so I'll get to you. I'm reasonable. You're not going to be able to understand God, so God will become a man so he can understand you. And I'll pay the debt of all of your sins. That's a reasonable God. I think that's far more than reasonable. Look back at Luke chapter 2. God becomes a man because Adam failed and he needed somebody to succeed. God became a man because Job had a great argument. But he answered it with Jesus Christ. 
Lastly, Luke chapter 2 and verse number 11, the angels go ahead and proclaim, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So why did he come? He came because mankind needed a Savior. So what do they need to be saved from? A lake of fire for all of eternity. The condemnation, the just condemnation of sin I mentioned earlier is a lake of fire. Say, well, what's sin? Sin is to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. To him it is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. Anytime we've done something that wasn't right, you know what it is? Sin. We are innumerable on how many sins a man commits in a lifetime. How many times we've thought something wrong? How many times we've said something wrong? How many times we've done something wrong? How many? You just start adding them up and it starts, you're done. Just the best accountants in the world couldn't get your right number. God's got the right number. <laughs> he knows exactly what you've done. And though our sins be many and our sins are as scarlet, God wants to make them white as snow. Although we have rejected God and He had no place in the inn and He had no place uh, over and over again. In fact, He had to borrow a tomb. He got a cross that wasn't supposed to be His and He got a tomb that He borrowed from someone else. Jesus. They didn't even have room for Him on, at His death. They made room. Well, get up there so we can kill you. He shows up. You say, what's he doing? I want to, I'm going to be the savior of all of mankind right here. Now, I've said over and over again, this is God that shows up. This is God that shows up for mankind. Look over at Isaiah chapter 43. I also mentioned the world's religions. I've also mentioned some Christianity, so-called folks who want to say that they're Christians. They love the name Jesus, but they don't believe him like you and I believe him. They don't believe that Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh to give his life and be the Savior of the world. They may say, well, he's the Savior, and they get it from Luke chapter 2. What they don't realize is that he's God. Some say, well, he's a begotten God. He's a secondary God. Some say, well, you know, he's not really God. He's, you know, this angel, all these other weird pieces. We'll simplify it nice and easy. Is God ever told a lie? No. God's never told a lie. No lie in the Bible. Not one. Isaiah chapter 43. God's speaking. Verse number 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Say, so who's the Savior? Well, Jesus is the Savior, okay, but God's the Savior. Say, so who is He? He's God manifest in the flesh. He's Jesus. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's who He is. He is God, shown up to give His life and pay the debt of the sin of the world. He came in Luke chapter 19, verse number 10, He came to seek and to save that which was lost. One of the best descriptors in the Bible of a lost man, someone who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, one of the best, absolute, most perfect words God could have used to describe somebody that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, has no idea for sure if they're going to heaven, is the word lost. If you're lost, you have no idea where you are. That's a man without Jesus Christ. They don't know where they are in relation to God. They don't know where they're going. Am I going to heaven? Am I not going to heaven? Where am I going when I die? They don't know. How do I get where I'm going? They don't know that either. <laughs> That's a pretty good descriptor. Just that one little simple four-letter word, lost. If you don't know for sure where you're going when you die, you're lost. Because God makes it really plain. There's a Savior who's here to save His people from their sins. 
to deliver them from the bondage of sin, to go ahead and pay the price of all of their sin, to go ahead and free them from that, and to give them eternal life. And his answer is that he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He can save to the uttermost. Say, so what does that mean? That means it doesn't matter what you've done. I've had people over and over again, I'm sure you've probably heard, if you've witnessed for any length of time, there's always somebody who says that they are so horrible that if they were to come into the building of the church, it would fall down, right? Or it would burn to the ground, or it would... My favorite answer to that, by the way, was when we moved into this building, and I said, nah, it's brand new, it's like steel and stuff. I don't think half of it would even burn. Just come on, it's fine. The snow load on this roof, ask Brother Getman, phenomenal, all right? We'll be fine, don't worry. Uh, structural integrity, we're good. Don't worry about it, come on in. My other answer was, why would God waste a perfectly good building? If he wants you, he'll just, I mean, he'll just go ahead and just shut your heart off. If he wants to kill you, he, he can do that in whatever way he likes. He can be inventive if he wanted to. He doesn't have to. Why would he drop a building on all the other people and ruin a perfectly good church? That's, that's just as silly as the thought he's going to drop a building on them when they come in. That's foolishness. That's just an excuse. The reality is they don't want to deal with God. The reality is they don't want to go ahead and have to recognize the fact that they're a sinner in need of a Savior and Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. They want to continue to do whatever it is they want to do. They want to act like nothing happens. They want to, but the truth is, there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We must. He is the only means of salvation. That is why he stepped out of the glories of heaven. That is why he set aside his royal throne. That is why he set aside the praise of the angels for the praise of shepherds. That is why he walked away from the greatness that he had and the omnipotence and the power and the praise of every living being in all of heaven. He set all of that aside and he stepped down to a baby in a manger knowing that he would live for 33 years and give his life a ransom for many and pay for your sins. He sets all of the greatness aside so that he could be the one sacrifice forever for all of man's sin. He answers Adam's failure with his success. The sinless Savior, behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. For God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He is the righteousness of God. He takes care of Adam's failure. So there's no more excuse to not get success. He answers Job's arguments. Well, God's not a man. He showed up. I have no daysman. Jesus is the daysman. Well, I can't get clean. You're right, God will clean you up. He's able and he's willing. Whosoever will, let him come take a drink of the water of life freely. Because Jesus Christ came to be the Savior of all of mankind if they'd have him. The choice, though, becomes will you take him? Will you trust that he's the daysman? Will you trust that he's the sacrifice? Will you trust that he's the one that can make you clean? That's why he came. And that's why he gave his life a ransom for many. That's why he laid down his life. That's why he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. That is why he says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's why the promise is whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because he is the Savior. And he wants to save. The only question is, will you let him save you? Will you let him? He's ready to save. The Bible says his arm is not short that it cannot save. He can reach. 
wherever you are and pull you out of whatever you're in and redeem you, pay for your sins. It's already done. It's the question of whether or not you'll come. It's the question of whether or not you'll receive Him. It's a question of whether or not you'll let Him be your Savior. He is the Savior. But is He your Savior? Let's go ahead and stand this morning. Simple message today. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He answered every moment. He rose to every occasion. He finished what needed to be done to secure a home in heaven for every person that, it will, that is willing to receive Him. And if you're willing today, we'd love to open a Bible and show you out of the Bible how you can know Jesus Christ is the Savior. The Bible says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. Not maybe, not hope, not wait, not well, we'll see. It's Jesus Christ alone. He is the Savior. And if you'd ask Him to, He'd forgive you and wash you of all of your sin and He'll go ahead home in heaven for all of eternity if you'd be willing to ask him for it. Christian, I know I preached a lot on salvation this morning, but now is a perfect time of year to let everybody know a Savior has come into the world. I hope you're telling somebody, the shepherds, they showed up, they heard about it, the proclamation came from the angels, the shepherds go, they make sure the proclamation is true, and then they go and they glorify and they tell everybody, Luke chapter 2, of what they had gotten to see and what they, had gotten, what, they, what they witnessed. That's why we call that witnessing. <laughs> you just tell them what you know. And if you've met Jesus and you've trusted him as your Savior, you've got a lot to tell. I hope you are. Father, I do pray you would bless the invitation now. Father, someone here is lost. I pray you give them the courage to come forward and get my attention. Let me know so that we can open up a Bible and show them for sure their sins are forgiven forever. How to get it done. Lord, we pray you'd bless even now in Jesus' name. Amen.